Sorting Facts by Susan Howe, Section 11. This Soiled World, Walt Whitman, Reconciliation. Don't be worried by the sound of test pilot, David wrote home to his father and mother in 1943. It is nothing glamorous or exciting like the movies make it sound. There are perfectly routine checks which must be made on all the airplanes at certain intervals. That is all there is to it. What he was really learning to do, he learned to leave out. Less than a year later, he was flying B-17s or flying fortresses on bombing missions over Germany in what military strategists, historians, and war buffs refer to as the European theater of war. Each letter a soldier wrote home from the theater was inspected first by War Department censors. On the march, only a language of remains gets passed. All lost material and non-acted newsreels, here is the real, the coverless. On September 7th, 1938, Zika Vertov listed among forbidden battle techniques of a documentarist's, substituting the appearance of truth for truth itself. Since David died, I can look at photographs of him, though I still haven't been able to look at the video copy of a home movie his daughter sent us in 1991. It was filmed by his first wife's uncle during a summer in the 1950s. Bay was still alive. She died October 9th, 1965, so I never met her. Here she sits on a garden chair in a gunkwit in summer. She is reading, knitting, or watching her granddaughter, Lisa. Judging from family photograph albums, her husband was usually surrounded by admiring painting students and fellow artists. In this homemade film, Bay is a widow in her 60s. I remember that in our last summer together, David couldn't look at the recovered black and white film documentation of her moving image without crying. Sometimes he and Lisa's mother are playing in the sand with their daughter. Sometimes he stands at the door of his studio, then goes inside. He designed the building himself. Now it has been torn down. I can only perceive its imprint or trace. Lisa remembers listening to the noise of waves breaking over pebbles in the cove at night, how tides pulled them under, how they swirled and regrouped in the drift and came back. I imagine the noise as fixity, gathering like a heartbeat, steady and sure. I have pushed the video cassette box onto the bookshelf near your desk, out of sight. Because the camera operates at 16 frames per second for old home movies, and speed is silent. Because your moving image would rupture the suture of sound projection. Because there is no acoustic parallel. 
nor is concord possible. The bad old days, mocking scramble for cover, torn labor. October 5th, 1993. October of meeting nowhere. On January 21st, 1924, Vladimir Ilyich Lenin suffered a massive stroke. He died that evening at 6.50. We close the mouth and the eyes of the dead and arrange their bodies so they look as if they are sleeping peacefully or resting before we burn, bury, or seal them up. Lenin's body lay in his sick room at Gorky on a sheet-draped table surrounded by flowers and fir branches. During the night, friends, colleagues, and relatives stood guard over his remains. The following day, his body was placed in a coffin lined with red cloth, a small red pillow under his head. Pallbearers and mourners carried the coffin to the train and boarded it. When the train reached Moscow, where the dead leader was to lie in state, the route to the trade union house with its hall of columns was lined with troops. The temperature was 40 degrees below zero, but crowds were gathered on streets, rooftops, balconies, everywhere. The hall was draped with black and red ribbons. Black banners hung from the ceilings. The coffin was carried from the train by Kalinin, Bukharin, Tomsky, Kamenev, Stalin, Rutsutak, Zinoviev, and Rykov. Over half a million people filed by his bier between January 23rd and 26th. Outside, the temperatures were freezing, yet they stood for hours, night and day, waiting for a chance to look. In Lenin Lives, the Lenin cult in Soviet Russia, Nina Tamarkin describes Lenin's bizarre progress from mortal revolutionary hero to embalmed cult icon under glass. It wasn't easy. There were technical and scientific embalming problems competitions for best sarcophagus designs, committees. In November 1930, the granite porphyry and labradorite mausoleum holding the transparent coffin open to the public. Modern tombs are a skeptical affair. The ancient sculptors have left us nothing to say in regard to the great final contrast. When Henry James wrote this, he was referring to the art of stone, not the art of moving pictures. Throughout 1933, eagerly or devotedly following Lenin's instruction that the production of new films inspired by communist ideas and reflecting Soviet reality should begin with the newsreel, Vertov labored to produce three songs about Lenin commissioned for the 10th anniversary of their leader's death. In preparation, he and Elizaveta Zvilova searched through archival 
Cinematech, and unprocessed footage in various cities, including Tiflis, Kiev, and Baku, for moving images of the living Lenin that might have been overlooked by newsreel editors. In each instance, the brunt of the work involved in exploring gigantic amounts of archive footage fell on Svilova's shoulders. For the 10th anniversary of Lenin's death, she particularly distinguished herself when, through a painstaking examination of hundreds of thousands of feet of film in various archives and storehouses, she not only located shots essential for the project, but reported finding, in addition, 10 original negatives that render the living Ilyich on film. With the help of a new sound engineer, P. Shitro, they were able, during one brief climactic section, to transfer Lenin's voice to film. Utilitarian pragmatism, iconoclasm, constructivism, pomposity, sentimentalism, modernity, archaism, and strident nationalism can all be located in this cinematographic memorial with its vivid musical score by I. Shaporin. First song, hand-lettered, under a black veil, my face. Vertov and Zvilova collated their newly collected archival documentary material with other footage already gathered between 1919 and 1924 by the Council of Three. Okinoki, the third member of the triumvirate, was the cameraman, Vertov's brother, Mikhail Kaufman. This was juxtaposed with ethnographic segments photographed by D. Sorensky, M. Majitsen, and B. Monatsjersky, of women almost completely shrouded under layers of clothing from the eastern areas of the Soviet Union. Sometimes these walking mummies joyfully fling off the veils covering their faces for the camera. Other women are shown learning to shoot rifles, entering workers' clubs, learning to read, learning to operate heavy machinery. Three Songs About Lenin was produced in 1933 during the unsettling period of transition between silent film and film with synchronous sound. For the first two songs, it's as if two realities are being unified and falsified by the controlling musical score and instructional titles superimposed. By the third song, the materialist conception of history is no longer a hypothesis, but a scientifically demonstrated proposition with an understanding of the potentials of the microphone. On the level of subject matter, the internalized danger situation of a lost love object is being projected, printed, and distributed throughout. Sound effects, seesaw through artifices of montage. Turkish, Turkmen, and Uzbek folk songs about Lenin are hailing a worldview that the old materialism could not satisfy. Late 19th century romanticism, Siegfried's funeral music from Wagner's Goddard Amarung, is hailing a delayed reaction to Hegel's faith in human reason. The practical telecommunication of the mid-20th century is hailing. Hey, you there. 
December 1932, an efficient machine interrupted by the assassination of Kirov. Other people against the wall. All this behind the scenes in the world market. Hey, you there. Lenin's insistent communicativeness. How many times here in the Red Square did we hear him speak? In the middle of the second song, there is a sequence where the founder of the Soviet Union, in the very act of haranguing the masses with his raised arm, interrupts the officious narrative commentary, as if he really could be projecting his aggressive instincts on the restrictions of cinematographic plausibility. Lenin, mouthpiece source and limit of realism, talks. Stress the importance of triumph, poignancy of, the, of its imagos. Learning to talk is a complicated process. The child's growing skill between two realist poles, hostile impulses as well as bad internal objects, a little demon of melodrama, helping figures quickly blossom in the creative surge of aesthetic necessity. Yes, the triumph of split off illusion, no, the ambush and defeat. Some of the mourners are acting, looking back. Third song, hand-lettered, in Moscow, ah, in the great city of stone, on the square stands a tent, the tent where Lenin lies. We see workers inspired by the country's first great electrificator, Lenin, laboring joyfully in huge hydroelectric plants in factories on collective farms. Machinery is now the weapon. Our oil, our coal, our metal, our mighty Baltic White Sea Canal, Lenin, we go forward. While the message may be that Lenin, Leninist communism is liberating, particularly so for women, Annette Michelson demonstrates in the kinetic icon in the work of mourning, prolegomena to the analysis of a textual system, ways in which this film she calls a, a, ver, a veritable iconostasis draws its subliminal visionary force by working in and around the ancient Russian tradition through music, iconography, and literature of anonymous female oral lamentation at funerals and burial ceremonies. If, as Melanie Klein says, following Freud, mourning is the pain experienced in the slow process of testing reality. Three songs about Lenin is a cinematographic embodiment of the fluid and passing states, the interaction and interjection between sorrow and distress. This innovative post-revolutionary cinematic memorial to the father of the socialist motherland, by use of the camera's eye, may bring into arbitrary relief the patient mitigation of hatred by love. But, but why do women in moving pictures so often serve as representations of the extension of love united beyond strife? At the same time, they are being caught unawares by the camera's point of view. 
Writing this essay, I have no clear idea what value there can be in a fragment of concrete reality in itself, multiple and always at the mercy of a national and personal identity. The real time of emotion isn't musical time or background noise of civilization or continuity of exposed film. You can always tell memory, not the coverings it closes first. Three songs about Lenin runs forward by half removes into those early blacklist days, wonderfully without defense. Defense as it appears in fortresses and humans. La Jetie is made up almost entirely of stills. It opens with a lowering sun, departing planes, and World War III about to begin. Marker's use of photograms and freeze frames in this film that calls itself a fiction is a compelling documentation of the interaction and multiple connections perceived separately and at once between lyric poetry and murderous history. That's the secret meaning. I knew it by telepathy in 1948 when I was, when I was 11 and first saw the movie of Hamlet. Andre Bazan says in theater and cinema, when a character moves off screen, we accept the fact he is out of sight, but he continues to exist in his own capacity at some other place in the decor which is hidden from us. There are no wings to the screen. Chris Marker's filmography lists a 26 minute video, Tarkovsky 86 as part of a longer work called Zapping Zone. I haven't been able to see it, but I noticed his name on the list of credits at the end of the ponderously titled The Genius, The Man, The Legend, Andre Tarkovsky, produced by the Swedish Film Institute in 1988. Tarkovsky directed a stage production of Hamlet in 1982. To begin with, it's a family a closely knit family. They mustn't have the slightest inkling of all that lies ahead of them. They are very protective of each other, very dear to each other. They are all together and that makes them happy. He wrote in reference to Ophelia, Laertes and Polonius in act one, scene three. The Russian director Andrei Tarkovsky often mixed documentary footage with fiction. He scattered professional actors, stagehands, friends, and family members throughout his films, just as he arbitrarily blended time periods with international and domestic situations. The project he variously titled A White, White Day, Atonement, Redemption, Why Are You Standing So Far Away, even Martyrology, was to include fragments of straight interviews between his mother, Maria Ivanova, who had once been an actress, and himself, until he abandoned this early cinema verite approach and replaced the interview format with acted scenes. Mirror is partially based on his memories and her memories of life before, during, and after the war. The actress, Margarita Terekova, plays both his wife and his mother, while Maria Ivanova is herself and acts her mother.
Ignat Danilstev plays Tarkovsky's son, Ignat, really Andrushka, and Alexei, Andre himself, as a boy. Oleg Yankovsky is the director's film father, while his real father's poems are read off screen by Arseny himself. Real or acting, the characters have the same reflection in whichever mirror serves as camera for the filmmaker, for his cinematographer. They can pass back and forth from one to the other, but that's what movie acting is because there are no wings to the screen. Any soul can be the body. Distant woods, beautiful auspicious morning at evening, a sudden west wind soughing through white flowering meadow. Facts are perceptions of surfaces. In Sculpting in Time, Tarkovsky writes about his problems beginning mirror. First, it was to be a novella about the wartime evacuation with the plot centering on a military instructor at his school. During the second version of the script, the idea of the interview with his mother took precedence, but the incident continued to torment me and lived on in my memory until it had become a minor episode of the film. He abandoned the second version because he continued to feel he was missing an essential vision or fact or memory that would raise the project above the level of lyrical autobiography. The constantly changing quality of this work in progress confirmed his feeling that scenario is fragile and constantly changes with the material as well as with qualities individual actors bring to it. This improvisational way of working continued throughout the filming and editing stages. At some point, he decided to include newsreel shots. Though he seems to have been worried about the combination of acted and documentary sequences. He gathered found footage, intending to use it, but the collection represented only isolated fragments, lacking the single time sense he wanted. So, just as Vertov and Svilova had done while preparing three songs about Lenin, he continued searching until the day he came across a sequence showing Soviet soldiers crossing late Sivash. Suddenly, quite unheard of for a newsreel, here was a record of one of the most dramatic moments in the history of the Soviet advance of 1943. It was a unique piece I could hardly believe that such an enormous footage of film should have been spent recording one single event continuously observed. I had, it had clearly been filmed by a gifted cameraman when on the screen before me, there appeared as if coming out of nothing, these people shattered by the fearful inhuman effort of that tragic moment of history. I knew that this episode had to become the center the very essence, heart, nerve of this picture that had started off merely as my intimate lyrical memories. The army cameraman who filmed this extraordinary document was killed the same day he shot the footage. Tarkovsky doesn't give us his name. I haven't been able to find it in any writing about the film. Most of the young soldiers were killed also. 
the Soviet chief of state cinema advised them to remove the sequence from the wider selection of documentary intervals or detours because the scene showed too much suffering. When almost halfway through the film, the director begins to introduce the various black and white newsreel documentary inserts, they telescope together, binding his memory time of youth to the actual geopolitical chain of violence. Seemingly everywhere during the second half of the 20th century, the archival inserts are sometimes shown at a slower speed, sometimes with wild recording fake later. Sent back poems from the invisible side of events. The newsreel film by the anonymous cameraman at Lake Sivash acts as an open parenthesis for the tragicomic autobiographical episode in which evacuated boys at target practice in an icy outdoor rifle range play a cruel joke on their shell-shocked military instructor. He has no name either. In fact, authentic documentary material blighted the hearts of children all over the world who came to consciousness enveloped by threatened futurity during the non-nuclear and then nuclear 1940s. We were alert to the subliminal disjunction between actual and fictional cinematographic realism shown in theaters, never called cinemas, because no one had television at home. When I said that in Cambridge on Saturdays at 10 a.m., the weekly ritual for children at the University Movie Theater consisted of a newsreel, a cartoon, previews, the main feature, and a serial, I left out the intermission. The curtain came down as if this were a play and much to our disgust, perhaps because it demonstrated, in fact, there were wings to the screen. A real man, comedian or magician, his name didn't matter, we never knew it, walked on stage with a blackboard and other props. We scorned him for interrupting our absorption in ritual. We scorned him for being human. Let's go on with the show. Let's go on with the show. I chanted with the crowd firing tickets, spitballs, and popcorn in his direction. No matter that some of us had been sobbing over the death of noble animals in my friend Flicka, or Bob, son of battle, not 10 minutes earlier. During wartime, quantities of aggressive impulses nullified our terror of the danger of disruption and released our obsessional defense mechanisms. We needed to show triumph so we persecuted this mortal parentheses with hoots and jeers. Saturday after Saturday, he recited the number lists and little miracles that made up his repertoire of, twicks, of tricks or jokes until the lights dimmed. He carried his props off stage to the margins from whence he came, and a curtain rose revealing the screen. The soul had returned to the body. The main feature could resume. According to the narrator of San Soleil, the baffling part of the Japanese Shinto ritual of Dondo Yaki is that circle of little boys we see shouting and beating the litter of scraps of burnt ornaments or votive offerings with long sticks after the flames have died down. They tell him it's to chase away the moles. He sees it as a small, intimate service. In English, mole can mean Aside from a burrowing animal, 
aside from a burrowing mammal, a mound or massive work formed of masonry and large stones or earth laid in the sea as a pier or breakwater. Thoreau calls a pier a noble mole because the sea is silent, but as waves wash against and around it, they sound and sound is language. Specimen Days, published in 1882, consists of extracts from notebooks Walt Whitman kept between 1862 and 1865 when he was visiting sick and wounded soldiers on the field and in hospitals around Washington, D.C. There are other sequences in Specimen Days he calls memoranda, later added in Camden, New Jersey, where the poet moved after suffering his first paralytic stroke, one, penciled, one warm October noon, titled Cedar Plums Like Names, is about the problem he had naming the book. In a footnote marked by an asterisk, he provides a list of suggested and rejected titles. There are 35. Then, reader dear, in conclusion, as to the point of the name for the present collection, let us be satisfied to have a name, something to identify and bind it together, to concrete all its vegetable, mineral, personal memoranda, abrupt raids of criticism, crude gossip of philosophy, varied sands, clumps, without bothering ourselves, because certain pages do not present themselves to you or me as coming under their own name with entire fitness or amiability. As if to stifle his own egotism, he adds, in parentheses, it is a profound, vexatious, never explicable matter this of names. I have been exercised deeply about it my whole life.